Hi, Daily 202 listeners. Allison Michaels here. I'm the politics editor for The Washington Post's audio team. I also host our weekly politics show, Can He Do That? Since James Holman became a Washington Post opinions columnist and left the Daily 202 podcast, we've been working on some new ideas from the audio team. We're dedicated to bringing you an even better experience with The Washington Post in audio, and we have some exciting plans underway to do just that. As we build those plans, we have made the tough decision to stop producing episodes of the Daily 202's Big Idea podcast at the end of this week. But don't unsubscribe from this feed. If you stay subscribed, you'll be among the first to hear news about our new podcasts. In the meantime, the Washington Post audio collection has so many other great shows for you to discover. Since we know you love daily news with us, subscribe to Post Reports, our flagship daily podcast. That show features unparalleled reporting, expert insight, and clear analysis every weekday afternoon. Or consider downloading the Washington Post app to get breaking news and analysis on your mobile device wherever you are. Lastly, as we work on new shows, we'd love to hear from you. And I've heard from so many of you already. I am so impressed, and I'd love to keep the feedback coming. What have you loved about The Daily 202's Big Idea? What do you wish were different? What kind of audio news show would you really want to see? I want to hear all of your feedback directly, so please reach out to me. My email is allison.michaels at washpost.com. That's allison with two L's dot michaels at washpost.com. Thank you all so much for your dedicated listening right here. We're excited about what's next, and we hope you'll join us. Okay, that's it. Here's your news for today. Good morning. I'm Allison Michaels with The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 31st. In today's news, the governor of Michigan asks the White House to surge vaccine to virus hotspots as cases climb. And the teen who documented George Floyd's death for the world gives emotional testimony on the stand. But first, the big idea. The White House on Wednesday is expected to unveil a plan to spend $2.25 trillion on a jobs and infrastructure package. The package could form a cornerstone of President Biden's economic agenda. My colleagues Jeff Stein, Juliet Alperin, Sungmin Kim, and Alyssa Fowers report that Biden's plan will include approximately $650 billion to rebuild the country's infrastructure, like its roads, bridges, highways, and ports. The plan will also include in the range of $400 billion toward home care for the elderly and the disabled, $300 billion for housing infrastructure, and $300 billion to revive U.S. manufacturing. And though the details of this could still change last minute, the plan is expected to include hundreds of billions of dollars to bolster the nation's economic grid, to enact nationwide high-speed broadband, and to revamp the nation's water systems to ensure clean drinking water. The roughly $2 trillion in new spending is spread out over eight years. That's according to the blueprint laid out to congressional allies on Tuesday afternoon. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki has said that the proposal will be paid for in new tax hikes. These hikes will be particularly focused on corporations because Biden's team is seeking to reverse much of President Donald Trump's 2017 tax law. The plan, which Biden will introduce in Pittsburgh today, forms one part of the Build Back Better agenda. Saki has said the administration, within weeks, will introduce a second legislative package. That second package is expected to include an expansion in health insurance coverage, an extension of the expanded child tax benefit, and paid family and medical leave. White House officials have not explained whether they will seek to have both of these efforts pass at the same time or try to get Congress to approve one first. The combined price tag, though, of the two plans could top $4 trillion. That's a lot of money. 
The jockeying around these efforts has already begun, as Biden's allies push for inclusion of their priorities in the next major legislative effort. Centrist Democrats have said the package should be targeted to win Republican votes. They're seeking a return to bipartisan policymaking after a contentious and partisan vote over Biden's earlier relief plan. But liberal lawmakers and some economists are pressing the administration to use Democrats' narrow majorities in Congress to confront some of the nation's biggest problems, like climate change. Congressional aides expect a bruising legislative battle, and they think it will be more difficult than the relatively quick passage of Biden's relief plan, because then Democrats were held together in part by the need to combat the pandemic. Despite some objections, almost every Democrat in both chambers voted for Biden's plan. Biden's team is also eyeing as much as $3 trillion in new tax hikes in order to pay for these two programs. These hikes would be primarily on wealthy investors, rich people, and businesses. Those have already come under heavy criticism from congressional Republicans who say that hikes like that will damage U.S. competitiveness and drain the nation of vital economic activity as it struggles to rebound from the pandemic. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said this month that Republicans would not support tax increases to pay for infrastructure. However, some Democrats are already saying they'll vote against Biden's package unless it includes tax changes that the Republicans also oppose. The White House is pressing forward despite these emerging divisions. And that's the big idea. Here are two other stories that should be on your radar. Number one. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is battling a surge of coronavirus infections in her state. On Tuesday, she appealed to White House officials, asking them to shift away from a strict population-based formula for allocating vaccines and instead to rush more doses to hard-hit parts of the country. The Post's Isaac Stanley Becker reports that her inquiry reflects growing unease among state officials on the front lines of what health experts say could be a new wave of the virus. And it illustrates the pressure President Biden is under, even from members of his own party, to show that he's taking steps to address disquieting trends after a prolonged period of declining infections. The accelerating pace of vaccines has not been sufficient to fend off case increases as more transmissible variants circulate in the U.S., especially among young people who have fallen sick in outbreaks that are tied to schools. As of Monday, Michigan's seven-day average of new daily cases saw a 58 percent increase from a week ago and the steepest increase nationwide. That's according to some Washington Post data. The state also reported the largest growth in that same time frame in coronavirus hospitalizations, which rose by more than 47 percent. Restrictions were recently relaxed in Michigan. But the White House's coronavirus coordinator told Whitmer that the Biden administration is not inclined to change its formula for allocating vaccines. Currently, the federal government sends all three authorized vaccines to states and to other jurisdictions based on the size of their populations. They also set aside separate portions for retail pharmacies, federally run mass vaccination sites and community health centers. All told, the federal government is expected to deliver about 33 million doses this week. Much of the increase comes from a significant boost of Johnson & Johnson's single-shot vaccine, the supply of which is being evenly split between states and pharmacies. The formula for vaccine allocation was inherited from the Trump administration, though Biden's team has significantly expanded the number of retail pharmacies where shots are available, and they've also deployed federal personnel to stand up about two dozen mass vaccination sites. Biden promised another 12 in his remarks on Monday. Officials say these sites are chosen because they serve residents disproportionately burdened by the pandemic. Number two. 
Darnella Frazier never expected that her footage of a Minneapolis police officer kneeling on a man's neck outside Cup Foods last May would go viral, or that it would change her life. Millions across the United States saw in the video another instance of police brutality against a Black man that ended in his death. Only this one dragged on for more than nine minutes as George Floyd cried out and distressed onlookers pleaded with the officer to relent. The Post's Kim Belware reports that Darnella Frazier took the stand as a witness for the prosecution Tuesday in the trial of former officer Derek Chauvin and gave at times heartful testimony heard only through courtroom audio. Frazier, who just turned 18, is among four witnesses that the judge allowed to testify off camera since they were minors at the time of the incident or still are. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison has argued that Chauvin should face a harsher sentence if convicted because Floyd was killed in front of children. On a cross-examination, Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson, asked Frazier if the video had changed her life. In a follow-up, prosecutor Jerry Blackwell wanted to know how. He asked, quote, Would you tell the ladies and gentlemen how your viewing experience and what happened to George Floyd has affected your life? Frazier drew in a deep breath. She then said, quote, When I look at George Floyd, I look at my dad, I look at my brother, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I have a black father, I have a black brother, I have black friends. And I look at that, and I look at how that could have been one of them. Shortly before she was dismissed from the stand, Frazier added that she tries not to blame herself or the other bystanders for what happened to Floyd. She said, quote, It's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. She said that while referencing Chauvin seated several feet away in the courtroom. Frazier was the fourth witness for the prosecution since testimony in the high-stakes trial began Monday. Less than two full days into it, prosecutors have already hinted through their witnesses and their line of questioning how they are trying to build a case against Chauvin that will paint his actions as intentional and abnormal, even for police use-of-force situations. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, March 31st. I'm Allison Michaels. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.